Hopefully you're all reading along with us in the F260 series, and you know that this week's passages walk us through the life of Peter and all of his interactions with Jesus. And now I want you to turn and look at your neighbor, and if they do not have a confused look on their face, tell them that they just got busted for not reading the reading plan this week by the challenge pastor. In all reality, I do seriously hope that you are plugging into your reading this week. Um, you know, it's just been really encouraging for us, hearing how God is speaking to people's hearts, hearing about conversations that are happening in small groups, conversations that are happening in D groups, hearing some of you just share your personal stories about things God's saying to you or things that he has revealed to you personally as you've been walking through this reading plan. It's just been cool to hear that stuff. So glad that we're doing this together. And on a truthful note, this week we are reading into the life of Joseph. Um, we're nearing the end of Genesis, as you just heard. We're beginning to see the formation of the nation of Israel but it's quite an interesting journey for all of these sons of Jacob. So let's jump into it together this morning. I want to start by actually going back to a passage that was from last week. It's Genesis chapter 37. It's the beginning of the story of Joseph that we read. And it's one of those more famous passages that even if you don't read a lot of scripture that you've probably heard, the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors, and the story where he has a couple of important dreams that end up causing some problems for him. You'll see what I mean. Pick up with me in verse 5. This is Genesis chapter 37. We're reading verses 5 through 11. One night Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. Do you think there's going to be a problem here? His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think that you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream. He said, the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers. But his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Now, I want to point out just a couple things here that are inferred, but not really spelled out in black and white. They're probably pretty obvious to us. But as Joseph shares these dreams with his brothers, there's a sense of pride and arrogance in him. It's, he's telling them all about this dream where you're going to bow down to me. And he's the little brother, keep in mind, little brother of a big family. And all the brothers are looking at him going, what? We're going to bow down to you? But he's got this sense of pride in him. And you see the reaction that you would expect. His brothers are like, we're going to kill him. This is it. It's all over. There's no way. You're getting the beat down, buddy. But look at his dad. It says that he scolded him, but then he pondered. He wondered, what do the dreams mean? It's kind of interesting because you see that his brothers were focused on the fact that little brother was telling them he was better than they were. But dad was wondering, is God doing something here? What's it look like? What's going to happen? Here's another thing I want to point out, and I'm going to hit this kind of quickly, and then we'll come back to it later and dig into it a little deeper, but the dreams that Joseph had at this ripe, know-it-all age of 17 were actually a word from God. In fact, if you flip over to Psalm 105, verse 19, where King David's writing about Joseph's journey, you read this, until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. That's referring to this specific moment where Joseph is having these dreams. And see, the word that's translated here as dreams in the New Living Translation is actually the Hebrew word, debar. And that's a word you're going to hear a lot today, so keep up with that. The word debar holds a lot of meanings, 
And it's one of those words that's really hard to translate from Hebrew into English because you could use a whole lot of different English words to try to convey what it means, and you probably still wouldn't get the full understanding. But there's two very specific meanings that I want you to hold on to for today in this context. The first is that it's a word from God that causes action. So God speaks it, and something happens. It's a word that causes action. You and I might think of that as prophecy. God is telling us something that's going to happen, and it's going to be followed by his action. The second thing is that it's a word from God that represents really a picture of conversation, but probably more specifically, it represents the idea of active listening. So God is speaking, but Joseph is actively listening and engaging in conversation. It's not just a one-sided conversation. It's God talking and Joseph truly hearing him, truly listening to what's being said. Now, these dreams that we read about in Genesis 37, we see them as the beginning of a relationship between Joseph and God. And it's where God speaks and Joseph is listening and engaged. He's holding on to that word that God's given him, that promise that he's given through the dream. And that's really important. Don't forget that because it gives context to what we're going to dig into. Now, I want you to fast forward with me to Genesis chapter 42. And Joseph is now the number two guy in Egypt. He's the governor over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. His brothers come to Egypt in need of food because there's this terrible famine all across the land. And we read this in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 42. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he'd had about them many years before. See, Joseph is reminded in this moment, which, by the way, is 22 years later. So Joseph, 22 years later, standing before his brothers, they don't recognize him, he recognizes them. He's reminded of the dreams that God gave him as a 17-year-old. And he sees the dream coming to pass. It's kind of like a Disney moment, isn't it? All dreams come true, right? I mean, I'm a dad of three daughters, so I've seen every Disney princess movie ever made. So sorry about that, but it's just kind of what came to mind. Anyway, while the story continues to unfold, there's these two points of Genesis that are kind of like the bookends in the story of Joseph that we look at. You've got Genesis 37 where we see the dream, God's prophecy, God's word that's given to him. And then in Genesis 42, we see the dream come to pass. It's that dream or that prophecy being fulfilled. But there's a lot of story that's unfolded in those five chapters in between there. Remember, 22 years have passed in Joseph's life. He's 17 when he has the dreams. Now he's standing before us here in chapter 42 as a 39-year-old. A lot has changed in him. He is not the same man that he used to be. Life has been tough for Joseph, or you might even say unfair. Go back and think through the story of Joseph for just a moment. Hopefully you've read all this and remember these details, but Joseph's the youngest son in a really big family, and we're told clearly that his father loves him more than everyone else in the family. He is the prized possession in the family, loves him more than all of his other brothers. It's favoritism without even trying to hide it. Now, how do you think that's going to go over with your siblings? Not very well, right? You know, mom or dad obviously love the one kid more than the others. That's going to cause a problem. Joseph's brothers despise him. He gets everything he wants. He never gets in trouble. Typical youngest kid in the family, right? Gets away with murder, does whatever he wants to do. No problems, no questions asked. And now he comes to him and tells him about these crazy dreams where he's going to rule over them. Now, how's that going to go? His brothers literally contemplate killing him. I mean, I'd probably have the same thought if I was in their shoes. And yet, they decide that's not the right thing to do. We want to avoid the sin of killing him, so we'll sell him into slavery. And they sell him to some Ishmaelite traders who are coming through their region and on their way to Egypt. And they're thinking, we're going to get Joseph as far away from us as we can possibly get him. Let's get him out of here. So the story goes on that Joseph gets sold by those traders to Potiphar. 
Potiphar is the captain of the palace guard for Pharaoh, and we see that in the, as the story unfolds there that even as a slave, Joseph actually rises to power. He has a position of authority. He becomes the number two guy in Potiphar's house, but then he hits another little kink, doesn't he? See, Potiphar's wife looks at Joseph, and she thinks he's all that in a bag of chips, and she is all about Joseph. That boy is looking good, and she chases him, and she pursues him, and she stays after him, and she tempts him time and time and time again. And what we watch is that Joseph makes a very difficult decision to avoid temptation and to do the right thing by refusing her advances. And yet, he ends up getting accused of attempted rape, and he's wrongfully imprisoned without a trial for a crime he didn't commit. Sound familiar at all? In fact, it's interesting. There are some pretty neat parallels between the story of Christ and Joseph's story. I would encourage you to go back and dig into that at some point and watch how it all parallels. So he gets accused of attempted rape. He's thrown into prison without a trial. And we don't know exactly how long he's in prison, but we're told that he's there for some time. And I would guess this to be a few years based on the timeline that we see in his story. And in that time, Joseph again finds favor. He finds favor with the warden. He's raised into a position of power or leadership. He's kind of the number two guy there in the jail. He's taking care of everybody else. And during that time, Pharaoh gets mad at his chief cupbearer and his chief baker. He sends them into prison right beside Joseph for something they did. We don't even know exactly what. And Joseph is interacting with them, and he gets an opportunity to interpret a dream for them. It's a gift that God has given him. Here come the dream things again. So he interprets dreams for them. He tells them what it means. Unfortunately for the chief baker, he says, you're going to be executed and impaled on a pole. Not really the end of the dream you want, right? But to the chief cupbearer, he says, you're going to be fully restored to power, and when you are, remember me in the presence of Pharaoh. But what happens? The chief cupbearer, his dream comes true. He comes back. He's fully restored to power. He's working under Pharaoh, and he forgets all about Joseph. So now Joseph is abandoned by that cupbearer after interpreting the dream, and he spends two more years in prison after that time. Time after time, Joseph is being betrayed, abandoned, forgotten, pushed aside. Then finally, he gets his chance. There's a day that Pharaoh comes and he shares, I've had these dreams and I need somebody to tell me what they mean. And all of his magicians and people throughout the land can't tell him. And the cupbearer goes, oh yeah, there's this boy Joseph back in prison. I forgot about him. He told me to tell you about him, but he, he can come interpret your dream. He, he interpreted mine perfectly. He told us all about what was going to happen, how you would restore me and how you would kill the baker. And so Pharaoh brings him out. He talks to Joseph. Jo Joseph interprets his dream. And Pharaoh ends up putting him in a position of power, number two guy in all of Egypt. That's huge. Here's a guy who came out of prison and became the vice president, basically. That's a pretty good jump if you think about it, right? And now here we stand nine years after he was released from a prisoner, being a prisoner, after he was put into power, and that original dream is finally being fulfilled. His brothers are standing in front of him. Now remember, 22 years have passed in Joseph's life from when he received that dream until this moment. Joseph's had some real struggles in life. His journey has been this roller coaster full of high highs and extremely low lows, just up and down, up and down. There have been all kinds of true injustices in his life. In fact, we read through a story and our typical reaction would be, that's not fair. Isn't that how we react all the time? I tell my girls at least once a week, life's not fair. Learn to deal with it, learn to walk through it. And that's true, right? Actually, if I'm being fully transparent, it probably goes more like, life's not fair, suck it up, buttercup. I'm that mean dad, so, and I know already, but that's, that's just kind of how we walk through it. But the truth is, life is not fair most of the time. 
And actually, thank God life is not fair. Because if life was fair, where would you and I be? How would we be doing? But from our limited and selfish perspectives, we look at things like this and we go, life's not fair. But when you read Joseph's story, it's like, man, this guy really got the short end of the stick. He got it coming left and coming right, didn't he? Take a minute and think about all that happened in his life and how unfair it must have seemed to him. And I want to make just a couple of observations about his story as we dig into this unfairness. The first thing is this. He's human. We don't see this very often in the story because when you read through it, it just tells us all the things that happened to him. It doesn't tell us a lot about what Joseph said or what Joseph did or how he reacted or anything about it. And you think, man, here's this guy that's going through all this turmoil and he's got it together, but he is human. He feels the same things that you and I feel. He experiences all the same emotions. He walks through the same stuff, things like confusion, hurt, anger, fear, mistrust. He's feeling all the normal stuff for the situations that he finds himself in. And it is interesting to me, the scripture doesn't really bother to tell us a lot about that. It's like the author didn't think that was important. And most likely Moses is the one who, who was writing this. We're not 100% sure, but most likely. And it's like, why would you not put that in there? I mean, that's important to me. I want to know that I can relate to Joseph, that he sees things and feels things the way I do. But see, there's some specific clues to this reality. It's not just my speculation for once. If you guys jump over to Genesis chapter 42... All of Joseph's brothers have been in prison now for three days, and they're coming back to see Joseph, who's getting ready to give them a plan for how they can go back to Canaan and bring the rest of their family. And Joseph is orchestrating all this. He wants to make sure that he gets to see his little brother, Benjamin, and he wants to make sure that he's eventually going to get to see his dad. And so he's setting all this up, and he says, you're going to have to leave one of your brothers here in Egypt. Now, keep in mind, they don't know who Joseph is yet. He's just the ruler over Egypt that they're talking to. You're going to have to leave one of your brothers here in Egypt, leaving him in prison, and basically he's going to serve as collateral for you so that I know you're going to go back and get your younger brother and bring him here and prove that your story is true and you're not really spies. And it tells us that the brothers became painfully aware of their sin from 22 years before in this moment, and then they give us a clue to Joseph's humanness. Look at the story here, Genesis chapter 42, verse 21. Speaking among themselves, they said, clearly, we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. They have this flashback in this moment. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. And that's why we're in this trouble. Joseph was in anguish. He pleaded for his life. Now that's the expected response in a moment like that, isn't it? If you're being thrown into a cistern, you know you're getting ready to be sold into slavery, you're being taken to a foreign country, you're all alone, you don't have anybody to go with you, you have no idea what's going to happen to you. Are you feeling good about that? No. He's in anguish. He's pleading for his life. It's the human response. He is suffering in that moment. And I have no doubt that he felt the same way when he was thrown into prison later after being accused of rape. You and I can relate to him. He was human. But here's the second observation I make in the story, and I think this is the most important one. It's that Joseph survives all he goes through because of one thing and one thing alone, his relationship with God. Joseph walks in close relationship with God. See, Joseph's story is different than the last couple stories that we've read in Genesis, because when you look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and even all the way back to Noah, there's all these moments in the story where you see God appear to them, and it's like they have these face-to-face encounters with God, and they're walking with God, and they're interacting with God, and you don't see the same thing in Joseph, but yet we see clues throughout the story of Joseph's ongoing relationship with God, 
And apparently he had this amazing trust for God in spite of all the things that have happened to him. In fact, look at a few of these occurrences. Genesis 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Genesis 40, verse 8. And they replied, we both had dreams last night. This is the cupbearer and the baker cupbearer and the baker talking. We both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Listen to what Joseph says here. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. You go on Genesis 41, verse 16. This is interacting with Pharaoh. Joseph says, it's beyond my power to do this, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. And then Genesis 41, verse 38. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to think about those passages and the things that are being said. We're told over and over that God is being with Joseph. He's with him. He's walking with him. He's doing life with him. We're told how God, or Joseph would give God credit over and over. We see that picture where he's saying, it's not my power, it's God's power. He's turning all of the glory back to God as he walks through it. He's showing his trust. And then in this last passage, here's Pharaoh, a guy from a foreign religion, a guy who doesn't know who God is or understand God, much less how Joseph worships. And he looks at Joseph and he says, could it be any more evident that God's spirit is all over him? God's presence is there with him. But see, I think the most important clue is given in the passage that I took you to earlier. If we go back to Psalm 105, 19. Until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. Again, it's that Hebrew word, debar, and I love the way New Living Translation translates this verse. I think it gives us good understanding of what's being said, but the truth is, in reality, it kind of misses it by a mile if you go word for word. Now, here's something you've got to understand if you're not familiar with this idea. There are some versions of the Bible that translate word for word. They go back to the original Hebrew or the original Greek, and they literally try to translate it from each individual word into English so that we have a good understanding word for word what it says. Those are things like New King James, NASB, ESV. Those are all translations that go word for word. And when you read through those, there's moments where you you see all the right words, but it's kind of like when you use Google Translate, and it's just like kind of out of order, and the verb's in the wrong place. And, you know, you read through, and it's confusing. Okay, you've had that experience? But those are word for word so that you understand each thing that was being said. The problem is, in Hebrew or Greek, sometimes there's not an English word that will translate and give you the full meaning and understanding of what was being said there. So sometimes you miss a little bit in context. In contrast, if you use something like NLT or NIV or one of these, they go back to the same original text, the same Hebrew or Greek words, but they're looking for what is the author trying to communicate in this? So when you put all of those words together, what does it mean? What are they likely trying to say here? And then they put it into how we would commonly speak so that we can read through it and have understanding. So again, I love looking at NLT because you read through and it gives you good understanding. Until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. I get that. But in this verse, if you look back word for word, there's actually two Hebrew words, not just one, that translates as our word, word. That's a tongueful or a mouthful right there. The word in English has two different Hebrew meanings here. Psalm 105, 19, look at the NASB translation. It says, until the time, remember this is word for word, until the time that his word came to pass, that's the word to bar, the word of the Lord tested him. And that's a different word we're going to dig into here in just a second. That first word there is word came to pass is the Hebrew word to bar. It's what NLT translates as dreams. And it paints that picture for us to be able to look back 
to chapter 37 and know what he's talking about. The word of the Lord, the dream that Joseph had, is connecting the dots for us. Remember this word, Debar, has several meanings, but the most important understandings, especially in this context, is that Debar is a word from God that causes action, and it's a picture of conversation, or at least of active listening. In this case, most likely we would call it a prophecy. God's trying to say something to Joseph that will come to pass in the future. But it also paints this picture of relationship with God where Joseph is engaged in the conversation. He's actively listening when God speaks. And that's critical to understanding Joseph's development of character that we're going to see happen over those 22 years in between the dream and the fulfillment. But that second half of the verse is really important too. So NLT gives us good understanding. It says, the Lord tested Joseph's character. I know what that means. That makes sense to me. But when you look at a word for word, it gives some interesting insight. NASB says, the word of the Lord tested him. And the Hebrew word that's translated to our English word word here is different. I'm going to get that tongue tied here in a minute. It's not the bar, but rather it's the Hebrew word imrah. And it specifically refers to the Bible or to scripture. This verse is telling us that Joseph's character is being tested or developed according to God's word, according to scripture. Now, not simply by, holding, by Joseph holding on to God's promise, prophecy or promise through his dream, but his character is being developed as he is tested in contrast to God's word. In other words, is his life aligning with God's instructions for him? Is he living according to God's standard? You see the test come Joseph's way. How will he respond? Will he stand true to God's principles or will he indulge his flesh? See, here's the part I find interesting for you and I. That word imrah not only communicates God's word as scripture, but it also translates as God's word as a saying or an utterance. In other words, it's how God is always speaking to us. It doesn't necessarily refer to Debar that we see where it's a conversation and active listening, but it's God speaking. See, God is always speaking to us, specifically through his word. Let's get you caught up here. God's always speaking to us, specifically through his word. The question is never, is God speaking? But rather the question is, are we listening? Imrah is God's word for us. Debar is both God's word and our response. Joseph allowed Imrah to guide his life because he was walking in Debar, and that's really important to hold on to. Maybe it'd make more sense if I described it this way. Joseph's Bible wasn't dusty. He was engaged in God's word through relationship with God. Now, he didn't even have a Bible like you and I would have. If you look back that far, God's word wasn't in writing for him to read, but yet God was speaking and he was receiving and living by God's standard, God's word in his life as it was being spoken to him. And when you and I look at the story of Joseph, we see it from this 50,000-foot view, and it's easy to look down on that story and go, well, yeah, I see how his character's being developed. He's going through all these things because God's changing him and bringing him along and making him into the person he wants to be. How many of you see how God's working in your life when you get thrown in a cistern and you're being sold into slavery to another country? I mean, really? When you're walking through a trial and it seems like everything in your life just fell apart, everything is broken, everybody's turned against you, you've been abandoned, you've been betrayed, everybody hates you, you're all alone, how many of you stand in that moment and go, okay, God, what are you doing in me? If I'm being honest, not very many of us do that, right? We're looking at our circumstances. We're worried about where we are. See, we look at it and we see how God clearly used all this to break down Joseph's pride and to develop his character, develop his trust and his dependence. I don't think Joseph could see any of that at the time. At 17, 
Joseph would have been a terrible ruler over Egypt. All the pride and the arrogance that he had in him, it would have made it all about him. But see, Joseph at 39, after years of struggle, after years of brokenness, after years of being abandoned and betrayed and walking through all of this tough stuff, all the unfair moments in life, now he stands before us in a position to not only save his family, but to show love and grace and to bring restoration. Now, don't get me wrong, because it doesn't mean there weren't still human feelings and temptations there. In fact, as you continue in the story of Joseph, you see several times where he's testing his brothers. He wants to see, have they changed? Have they repented? Are they really for real? You know, do they even deserve forgiveness? It doesn't say that, you know, in, in black and white, but as you read through it, it's obvious that's kind of what Joseph's looking for. Are they different? But in the end, the spirit wins out over the flesh, and Joseph is a picture of Christ to his family. Like I say, I doubt Joseph could see God's plan in the midst of his circumstances, but I find it really cool that he's obviously seeing God's plan unfold before him just a couple chapters later. In fact, in Genesis 45, as he's revealing his identity to his brothers, we read this dialogue, chapter 45, verses 5 through 8. He says, but don't be upset. He's talking to his brothers here. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. Listen to this. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will neither be, be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. Now remember, he's looking back at the same story where he was thrown in a cistern and sold into slavery. But his perspective now says, it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. After 22 years of a complete roller coaster life, high highs and low lows, Joseph has seen God's word that the bar fulfilled in his life. And he's become the man that God intended him to be. Rather than holding his position over his family's heads or rubbing it in their faces, which, come on, that'd be really easy to do right there, right? You all threw me in a cistern and sold me into slavery, and now look at me. It'd be very easy to be prideful in that moment, but he's not. He approaches them with love. He works to restore the relationships. He serves them. He provides for them. And it's not from a position of pride. It's from a position of meekness. Remember, meekness, power under control. He's the number two guy in Egypt, and he's serving his family because he loves them. Band, you guys come on up. Here's what I want to ask you to ponder this morning. When you face trials or injustices in your life, are you looking for what God may be doing in you during that time? Or do you get stuck playing the victim or even lashing out at others because you've been wronged. I wonder, what trials are you walking in right now? What could God be speaking to you in the midst of those trials? Are you actively listening, that debar? Doing more than just hearing God's words, are you really engaging in it? Are you listening? You know, we teach in our schools, active listening is listening in such a way that you can repeat what was just said to you. You're hearing it. You can regurgitate it. Are you really listening? Are you engaging in the conversation and searching God's word, that Imra, searching God's word in the midst of your circumstances? Are you looking for what he's saying to you? 
You know, I feel like we say the same thing up here every week. There's, in fact, I, I got to one point as I was kind of making notes this week, and I went, man, I've said this every single time I've spoken for like the last six months. But I feel like we go over and over and over to say, you have to be in God's Word. You have to engage. You have to be involved in study of God's Word in order to allow Him to speak into your life and help you to become the person that He intends you to be. But the truth is, I can't ever stop saying that because that's just truth for us. We have to engage. We have to be listening actively. We have to be involved in his word. The only way Joseph became the man that God called him to be was by walking in relationship with God and allowing God to speak into his life. God's word is speaking constantly. That emra. Are you listening and engaging in the conversation? The bar. Hold on to that word. If not, start today. I would just invite you as the band plays to, to come and kneel. And ask God to speak to you. Ask Him to allow you to begin to listen differently. To begin to engage in that conversation. Seek Him out. Come over to Next Steps. Let us talk with you. Let us pray with you. Give you some tools that will help you to do that. Tell you what it looks like to walk in that Debar relationship. Don't leave today knowing that God's speaking, but that you're not engaging. Commit to walking like Joseph in that Debar relationship. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And then you respond as God leads. God, we just thank you for your amazing love and just the ways that you speak to us over and over and over through your word. And God, we're reminded this morning that that Imrah, that, that saying of you, the utterance from you, just you speaking to us through your word, through voice, through so many different means, God, that is always happening. You're always speaking. You're always there. You're always giving us wisdom and giving us insight and giving us direction and helping us along. The real question is, are we engaging in that? Do we know what it looks like to experience the bar in our lives? Are we listening to what you're saying? Are we engaging in the conversation? Are we listening actively in such a way that we put it to practice so that we can walk in relationship with you? God, this story of Joseph reminds us that we have to do something with the things that you speak into our lives. We have to allow that to change us. We have to allow it to impact our lives. We have to respond. Joseph went from a prideful young man to a humble, meek man who was ready to serve and literally save the world around him the way you used him because you had developed that character in him. You had changed him because of the relationship he had with you. God, help us to hunger to be like Joseph, to walk in that kind of relationship with you, to understand the things that you're saying to us, to engage in that, to, to live in that conversation, God, so that it is truly life-changing for us and developing us into the people you've called us to be. God, even now, I pray that you would give courage that we could respond as you speak to our hearts. Help us not to worry about what others may think or all the different temptations that may be around us or the fears or the insecurities, but God, help us just to focus on you and to trust in you and to depend upon you and to respond as you speak to us.